Tonight's message is entitled, Who is Like Our God? from Romans 11, verses 33 and 36. But beloved, we've made it. We've made it. We began this journey through Romans on September 7th, 2014. We haven't made it to the end, but since that date, we've trekked 50 long and arduous messages. Spent. This is our 50th message through the book of Romans. I counted them up today. We've had some breaks, different points, and uh, some other special services, but we've had 50 long and arduous messages through this. Maybe long and arduous for you, maybe not. We've witnessed some valleys. We've navigated some precarious turns. We've climbed some steep cliffs. We've trudged through swamps, and we've summited spectacular peaks. We've seen some tremendous views. We've hiked the Romans road through the Rocky Mountains of Scripture. And now, we, tonight, we come really to a magnificent scenic view. We've come to this window that overlooks the terrain that we've just crossed, where we can really soak in the awe-inspiring landscape that we've seen thus far. Here's what we've seen. If you just joined us recently, maybe you've been with us through the whole uh, journey. But let me tell you about the landscape that we've seen. Chapter 1 really begins with the superiority and the priority of the gospel. This is Paul's mission. This is why he is writing to these people, this church that is gathered together in Rome these Jewish and Gentile believers. And so right from the beginning, just 16 verses in, we're told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're told right away where the power comes from and the priority and the superiority of the gospel. And from there, once we learn this source, once we learn this power, from there we then learn of the universal guilt of all men. To the immoral pagan, to the moral man, to the Gentile and the Jew. All men are guilty before God. All men have committed sin. All men are condemned. We learn that God is impartial in his judgment as well. Nobody gets off the hook. Nobody gets a free pass. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then in midway through Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, things take a sharp turn, don't they? That great passage, but now, but now God has made a drastic change in the landscape. We go from the deserts to the lush, fertile ground full of moisture and green plants and tall trees. Very different than the Texas Hill Country, right? Though completely corrupt here, we're told that man can be right with God. Can be right with God. The plan has always been in place. This is proven throughout the Old Testament. But God has made a way to be justified, to be declared right through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation or the ransom for sinful man, taking on the punishment that we deserve. We read about this in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. Once we were then declared right by God and with God, we were then given a, a changed life. 
And there were some results of this changed life, though we, we were transferred to a completely different territory. We were no longer under our master of sin. We were no longer represented by Adam and his corrupt uh, uh, representation of us. But we've now been transferred into a new territory under the representation of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of that new territory, because of that new representative, this gives us great joy, this gives us great hope, this gives us great assurance in God's love for us. We can walk in this. And, and yet we're told that even though we, we are in this new territory, that the journey is still hard. The temptation still remains. Our old master still calls after us. Though that sin remains in us, it no longer reigns over us. No longer reigns over us. We've been given and we've been empowered by the resident Holy Spirit, God himself, given to us and dwelling in us, testifying with our spirit that we are indeed sons and daughters of God. We were born into, or we've been born into this new family. And his Holy Spirit not only assures us but he also enables us to kill sin in our life, to say no to temptation, to endure through trials and suffering and grief as we await the future glory that has also been promised to us. As we groan, as with creation groaning with us and the Holy Spirit sympathizing with us as we groan for that day and long for what is to come. Thus, we know that justification solved the penalty of sin which we deserved. We're told that the sanctification then, this, this what has severed the power of sin over us. And then we, we eagerly await the glorification where we will say so long to the very presence of sin. Our relationship with sin has drastically changed as a result of our changed relationship with God and the Lord Jesus. And our glorification, we know as we look forward to that, eagerly waiting, our glorification is sure to come as our election is sure, as our predestination is sure, as our calling is sure, and as our justification is sure. God has promised it and it will happen. Amen? So much like the safety we find in God's promise that all will work together for good in our lives today, right? We trust the, the safety there. We hide in the safety of this promise, the certainty that comes with that, that knowing we will never be separated from God's love. Come what may, come what temptations, come what accusations, come what deceptions. We will never be separated from God's complete and perfect love for his children. Who can comprehend all that we've journeyed through? Who can put into words all the landscape of what we've just seen that could adequately describe the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the wonder of it? Who can comprehend fully all these things? Can you fully comprehend what we've seen in the last three chapters? That the election, God's election of a remnant before the foundation of the world, based on God's abundant mercy and not our good works. Or can you comprehend his passing over those whom he's hardened? 
Can you comprehend humanity's responsibility to confess and to believe in the Lord Jesus? Or the responsibility of, 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 of uh, us to go and to preach? Can you comprehend God's the necessity of sending preachers who then preach the gospel, which is the power of God, to those who will hear it, who are then can respond to it in repentance and faith? <coughs> Excuse me. Or who can comprehend this temporary setting aside? The phase in which we find ourselves in in salvation history. The setting aside of Israel as a nation. And this putting on the forefront Gentiles for salvation. There's been a change in salvation history. Who can fully comprehend the coming day of Israel's return to blessing? And the fulfillment of God's promises he made with them. The covenants he made through the Old Testament. Who can comprehend God's orchestrating all of these things? Who can comprehend the vast landscape that we have journeyed through? And yet that's what it is. That's our view. That's what's been set before us these last 50 long and arduous messages. It's that landscape. It's that view. And so how do we respond when we, get, when we see the landscape for all it's worth, when the vision of that bursts on our sight? How do we respond? How do we view those things? We respond this way. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's the right response to the landscape we've sought. That's the right response. A burst of excitement. This is, this is a, a magnificent passage. This is the right response to theology. This is what it should elicit in us as believers. We're in Romans 11, 33 to 36. If you didn't catch it, that's what I just read. So for the last, I don't know, five to ten minutes, whatever it was, I was just giving you an overview of Romans 1 to 11 and all the major theological points that we've seen, the mountaintops we've been in, the valleys we've been in, and all the landscape that we've seen across these 11 chapters. And now we've come to the end. We've really come not to, to the end of the, the theology section. And we've been given this window now, this, the, uh, this break in the landscape to, and, and up on a high peak to see all. And this is the response. This, is, uh, this section of scripture is really what I, I just personally call this something I made up, but it's a benedictory transition. And this is a characteristic mark of many of Paul's letters, not all of them. But a benediction is like a closing prayer or a closing blessing. If you're a part of a maybe a more liturgical church, you know, at the end of the service, they have what's known as a benediction. Pastor yeah, prays a blessing and, and kind of an exhortation to now go and do it. And so Paul has a lot of these in, in different uh, letters of his. Maybe a familiar one that you know is in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, really. And that great prayer that he prays. 
you know. There, there's another one in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2. It's just kind of this transition where he goes from preaching primarily imperatives or facts or information about God, the gospel, theological really uh, statements. And then he has this great uh, transition or prayer that then leads him into the, the really the practical things, the, the uh, imperatives of, okay, this is how we now live, commands. And so whereas in the first 11 chapters of Romans, there's very few commands of go do this. Okay, you're a Christian, live this way and do this. There's some, but not many. But what we'll see in coming weeks and for the remainder of Romans, as we really leave these uh, thick theological sections behind and we're now going to get uh, lambasted with live this way <laughs> in a very good way you know uh, but he's going to tell us how to live in light of this theology and so this is Paul's response now in this section here this transition this is his response to the deep truth and the future hope that he's just written about for several chapters how else could we respond what else what is, what is more fitting than a, than a doxology like this. When we, when we read the theology like this, what is our right response but this? You know, it's like, how do you explain the beauty of the South Rim at sunset? If you've ever been to Big Bend on the Chisos Basin, and you're walking along, this, the, it's called the South Rim. Maybe some of you have been there, maybe not. It's a little bit of a hike out there. But as the sun's going down, it is magnificent. You're up high. You can see the animals. You can see across into Mexico. The, the falcons are, are flying through there. They build nests on certain parts of the cliffs out there. And it is magnificent. Don't think about any other type of beautiful scenery that you've seen. A, a mountain peak or a hill or, or just even a great view maybe that you have from your front porch. How do you explain that to somebody? It really can't. It really just inspires awe, isn't it? Our first reaction a lot of time is, oh, which we see here, the very first word in verse 33, oh. It's a, it's a, it's a really a groan of awe. And so such is the right response to theology. I've said the right response is awe. And so this, this is what uh, uh, people over the ages have said. Theology begets doxology. Doxology being praise, worship. So theology should uh, elicit in us, it should provoke in us this praise. And so we worship. We're in awe of God. His, we're in awe of his love, his abundant mercy, how he chose us, how he saved us. The wrong response to theology the wrong response to these deep theological truths that we've journeyed through are pride and indifference. That's the wrong response. It's pride and indifference. And maybe some of us uh, act that way towards it. We hear these deep theological truths and we're just indifferent about it. You know, we think, ah, eschatology, yeah, big deal. If eschatology leads you to indifference, then you've missed the point of its importance. If, es if election it leads you to pride, then you don't understand it. You don't understand it. You know, it's the wrong response. I, th this was several years ago now, but when I was a, I'm still a young parent, but when I was a new parent, uh, uh, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who was not yet a parent, but they, they were just newly married, and they're, they're now parents now, but uh, have young children. And, and 
somehow in our conversation he was quipping how uh, disturbing it would be if somebody you know trained their young child to respond differently in certain situations you know like when he fell down and got hurt then you just trained your kid to laugh at that you know like ah, or whatever or in a scary situation you know they you just somehow trained them to to laugh and if it was sad and like a really you know tender moment to you know to just act in ways that would be inappropriate right you know or when it was a time to laugh and be be jovial then you know just to, to act glum about it you it's i'm sure that somebody's probably done that in some sick twisted way that, but that would be wrong right that would be teaching your child to respond wrongly in certain situations Maybe some of us have been trained wrongly to respond to theology, to respond to these deep truths. And I, ho I hope you haven't been trained spiritually that way. I hope you haven't. I don't think you, you have been here in this church. But, but thankfully, even if you have been, even if you've learned these things growing up and it hasn't inspired awe and humility in you, but instead it's, it's bred pride and indifference, Thankfully, we do have the Holy Spirit who can work out and change and renew our thinking so that we have the right response of awe and humility. The wrong response to the deep truths of God is pride and indifference. The right response is awe and humility. These things should lead us to, to worship and to praise God. You know, our view of ourselves should decrease as our view of God increases. As we learn more about him. Election should lead us to awe and marvel at the love and mercy and plan of God. Eschatology should lead us to awe and marvel at the love and mercy and plan of God. And all the other things as we think about justification, our justification, that we've been declared legally righteous, made, declared right with God. That should lead us to awe and humility as we marvel at these things. That's the biblical witness. That's what we see across the pages of Scripture in the different narratives of, of God's people here. As they learn these truths here, Paul, this is Paul's personal witness to these things that he's just written about. You know, by hand, these 11 chapters. And I can just see him penning this, you know, dipping, writing, writing, dipping, the Holy Spirit inspiring him. And he just gets this and he writes, he finishes up with verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. And he just says, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Wow. Pride and indifference, when we understand these things, are struck down. But God's people should bow in humility and then lift their faces to God in awe as they understand these things, right? If you're an unbeliever, that's what, that's what you need to do. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, you need, to, you need to bow in humility. Repent and believe on Christ. Because you fit in the, the category that I first talked about. You are condemned. You're, you're, on, you're on the path of, to hell. You're under the judgment and the penalty of God. Penalty for your sin. You need to repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn towards Christ might find blessing you might find forgiveness for your sin do that tonight and so let's take a closer look at these verses here the remaining time here just want to explain these uh, these 
really four verses. And they break down very nicely here. There's three sections, really, with three parts in each section, okay? So three sections with three parts. The first is three exclamations. Maybe you noticed that. The next part is there's three questions, and then there's three prepositions. Each section praising God, each of these sections pointing to the incomprehensibility. That's a big word. We can't understand. He's in, he, he is unable to be comprehended or understood. But each pointing to the incomprehensibility of God. So let's look. Three exclamations in verse 33. Did you notice that? The Oh, the wow. And so the first exclamation is the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Look here, the depth of riches is speaking of that there's no end. There's no limits to these things. They're unable to be measured. It's a, it's a pit without a bottom. It's eternally existing. The depth of the riches, both of his wisdom, which speaks of God's, uh, his knowing what is best and right in all things. God knows what is best and right in all things. But not just the information part, but, but it also it's speaking that the depth of the riches of his knowledge. And this, is not, this isn't just that he knows and understands all the information. I really think that, that what is being alluded to here is God's relational knowing. Remember what we've talked about all along is God's foreknowledge. And what, what that means to the relational knowing of how he knew and chose somebody intimately. Oh, the depth of the riches of God's relational knowing and choosing and electing those whom you would love. Oh, that's, it's abundant. It's increasing. Right? This, is, this is what Ephesians 2 speaks to, right? But now God being rich in mercy, abounding in love. Oh, the depth. Who is like our God in this way? Who compares? Who has the, the, the limitless wisdom and knowledge like God? There's no counselor that does. You can go to any counselor in this world, biblical or not. Their, their wisdom and in, in the, in dealing with whatever situation you're in is incomparable to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. No teacher, no professor, no scholar has the vast amounts of wisdom that our God does. Who is like him? No teacher as well-meaning, as loving as they may be for their students. It's incomparable to the depth of riches that our God does. No advisor. Now, whatever they may be advising you in, in things of school, and things of uh, estate planning, and things of wealth, and in whatever it may be, insurance, their advice is incomparable to the knowledge and wisdom of our God. I'm not saying don't go to them, but nobody compares. Who is like our God? The second exclamation, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments. How unsearchable, to be unsearchable, we'd say it's inscrutable. It's not able to be understood by any amount of research, by any amount of exploration, or any amount of testing. His judgments, his executive decision-making cannot even be understood. It's unsearchable. It, it is beyond our ability. He is the ultimate leader. He is the ultimate decision-maker. He is decisive. He is never unsure. He is always certain in everything that he does. He knows what is right. He knows uh, what is best. Thus, all of his decision-making is always right and always best. There's no political president 
There's no prime minister that makes decisions like our God. There is no uh, elected official. There is no governmental leader who sits in the hot seat, who sits in the decision-making, who sits on the throne, no king or queen across our land that has the judgment, the perfection of God. There's no business CEO. There's no a corporate executive that is comparable to our God. No one comes close. The third exclamation, he says, how unfathomable his ways, unfathomable, we, we could also translate that incomprehensible. Really, the essence here is that it's beyond tracing out. This, this takes, whereas unsearchable would be, it's not able to be understood by research or exploration or testing. Really here, the, the meaning behind this word is that it's elusive. It's, it's also used of, of an animal's footprints who are untraceable. You can't, you can't find them. Not even, you know, Indian Joe and all the Louis L'Amour books who can, you know, track a horse across, you know, flat rocks, you know, under the hot sun. No one can follow God's tracks. No one can follow his ways or his plans or his purposes. Nobody could ever develop the logistical system that could compare to how God is the master logistician. He has everything planned out. He has everything developed. He knows all the, the plans, all of his purposes, how things are going to get from point A to point B. His ways are unfathomable, untrackable, untraceable. They're elusive to our understanding. There's no coordinator. There's no military logistician, no business logistician that compares to what God can do. And there's big money in that. You know, have you ever encountered somebody like this who's, who's that's their whole business and their whole job description is the, the logistics side? There's a friend of mine who who's works uh, as a military contractor, and his whole, I, his whole job is, is to the logistics of getting, okay, we need this amount of firepower and all these things over here, but they currently reside at this place in the United States or are being made all here, and what is it going to take to get all this equipment and all these things and all these people to this point? And what's it going to take and all the people? And that's a massive undertaking. And so there's big money to be able to do that effectively and efficiently uh, at the you know with the least amount of cost, but in the uh, and also in the least amount of time. And in other businesses, you know, another businessman, his whole uh, you know fortune has been made on getting oil from the oil rigs to the pump. He doesn't do either of those. He doesn't own any oil pumps or any oil rigs to you know, and he doesn't own any gas stations. But he does everything in between that and getting it from point A to point B. And he take, his whole company is all the logistics. And I think that is complex to, to do all of that and to do it in a way that you can make money and still keep gas affordable at the pump is, is masterful. And yet I'm here to tell you that as smart as both of those guys that I know are, they don't compare to the unfathomable ways of our God. Just the plan that we've seen in the last several weeks from Romans 11 
and God's plan and salvation history and what he's been doing in Israel in the past and today and what's yet to come and the Gentiles part in all that and all that's needed to happen in order to make that come and when the Savior came and when we think about all that's happened in human history and when Jesus came, the strategic point in, in, in history when he came, the perfect time and how God has worked out all the details of that. When we think about even our own salvation and all that it took you know, for us to hear the gospel, for when we were went from being unbelieving and, and encountering the gospel and whoever preached that to us and whatever it took to get us there and to all the steps that had to happen for us to even be here sitting tonight, we can't even comprehend all that went into taking care of all this, plus simultaneously every other person in this room and simultaneously every other person in our church, every other person in Kerrville, everybody other in, in Texas, and everybody who's lived throughout the course of history all around the world from day one to now. Our mind is blown at that. We can't trace that out. We can't fathom the understanding, the wisdom, the omniscience, who is like our God? Who compares to him? No wonder we exclaim this. No wonder this is our right response. So these three exclamations are followed up by then three questions in verses 34 and 35. You know, who can, who can comprehend all of these things? All of God's sovereign purposes. Paul can't. Scholars and theologians can't. And no, even your pastors can't understand it all. But he asks these three questions. He says, well, who's known the mind of the Lord? And the second question then, who, has, who became his counselor? He's quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 13. He's quoting these, these, uh, these questions come from that. And then the third question, who was first given to him that it might be repaid back from him? That's from Job 41, verse 11. And what is the answer to all three of these rhetorical questions? Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who, who's given to him that God owes him says, well, I guess, yeah, you gave me 10 bucks, so I got to give you 10 bucks back. Who's done that with God? No one, right? No one knows his mind other than himself. Who has become his counselor? Who does God go to for advice? Who does God go to for, for counsel? No one. Do you need to when you know all these things? When you are the originator of all things? No. No, he doesn't need to be repaid. He's never the recipient of anything that's owed him. But the interesting thing about these three questions is that they really correlate in reverse order the three exclamations. They really correlate the who's known the mind of the Lord? That, that goes back. Who's known his mind, his ways, his plans, his purposes? Ties us back into how unfathomable are his ways. Second question, then, who, who's become his counselor? Talks about his judgments, his decision-making. He, he never has the need to go to anybody for advice. He makes his decision. It's best, and it's what is right. And then the third question, who's given to him? This is speaking to his generosity, his riches. Is anybody's the, the, the depth of riches, the limitless riches of God in regards to his wisdom and knowledge? Who compares to that? No. Nobody. So these three exclamations, these three questions, 
then really lead to the, the final summary in verse 36 of these three prepositions. Notice what it says, for from him, through him, and to him. From him speaks to that he's the source of all things. God is the source of all things. He's the provider. He's the giver. He's the origin. All things in this earth are flow from him. He's the headwaters. He's the beginning. He was at the beginning. But not only is he the source, he's also the sustainer of all things. For through him, they come from him, but then they're also empowered and enabled and preserved and kept through him, through God. It also goes back to him, right? For he's the goal of all things. He's the purpose of all things, the prize, the objective. All things flow from him, through him, and to him. Our faith comes from him. Our faith is preserved through him. Our faith goes back to him, right? Right? Our good works, they come from him. They've been prepared beforehand from him. We're sustained through him for our good works. And then we are, they're done to him. All things in this world work for him. And isn't there really, even as you think about these three things, that from him, through him, to him, isn't, isn't there really a Trinitarian picture in all of this? God the Father as the source, coming through the power of the Holy Spirit, at work in us, all back to the exaltation of Christ and the lifting high of him for the worship and majesty and praise of, of Christ. There's even a Trinitarian picture in all this. It's glory to him forever. Glory to him forever because he is both the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega in all things. From him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It never ends. It never ends. His glory, the praise of God is going on forever. Right now, always has been and going on now forever. Doesn't this remind you of all the praise and the glory that we see in the scenes in the book of Revelation? Doesn't, doesn't this verse just, just speak to that and remind you if you're familiar with Revelation? Hear me, I just want to read a few passages. You don't have to turn, just listen as I read some of these great passages. Beginning in Revelation 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Again, in chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Again in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, 
says this, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. And lastly, in chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, it says, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Who's like our God, Bobby? Who is like our God? There is none that compare to him. None that compare to his abundance of love and mercy. None that compare with his knowledge, his wisdom, his judgments, his ways, his plans and purpose. Nobody compares to the generosity of our God, to the great grace of our God, to the limitless forgiveness of our God towards his children. Beloved, our right response is worship. Our right response to theology and the deep things of God is worship. For who is like him? Not us. This is, this is why we sing on Sundays. This is, this is what drives us to sing out in praise as we, as we think about the deep things of God and who he is, the riches of his character. The word should inspire feelings of awe and humility. And this, uh, I'll just add, is really the mark of true biblical preaching. When the word is preached, it should drive us to awe of God and the humility of ourselves. I am not like this God. It should provoke in us this sense of great awe of God. Beloved, this is our right response to these things. Modeled here as we see from Paul to the deep truths that we've seen on these long, arduous 50 messages. It's worship. We should love God more we should be more in awe of who he is and the great lengths that he went to call us his own. What it took to overcome that complete corruption of us is we should worship. So I want us to do that now. I want us, I want us to, to, to worship a little bit as we close tonight. I'm gonna, first what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a song by Carolyn Cobb. The lyrics are right in front of you. It's the verses, the four verses that we've looked at tonight. So I'm going to play it for us. I just want us to listen to it. It's, it's beautiful. She came and played in Kerrville about a year ago. It's a great song. So I want us, I want us to just listen and 
worship as we as we sit just individually. And I want you to, to pray and to think on the things of God. That for from him and through him and to him are all things. And after we're, we're just going to sing a cappella the doxology. Easy song. Brian's going to lead us in it. We'll just sing it once through. And then after that, then we're going to pray together. We're just going to pray in partners. Pray some prayers of thanksgiving and, and praise to God. And then uh, after after we finish praying, then we will, uh, 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 I'll take some time for questions. We'll do it actually at the end. So let me pray now uh, just briefly and play this, this song. Father in heaven, we do just give you the praise. We just cry out, oh God, how could this be? Who is like you? Who am I to deserve such things? why we bow before you as our king. That's why we lay all we have at your feet. That's why we give back to you, because it all belongs to you anyways. So help us to be more worshipful people. Help us to be more mindful of, of your glory in everything that we do, of living for your glory. In the day-to-day Dane things even of our life, God. And the vocations that you've put us in and the neighborhoods that you've put us in, God, help us to be mindful of your glory. Help us to uh, ruminate on these truths. And may they provoke in us a deeper sense of, of worship and awe and thankfulness and gratitude 